this week and next week is going to be a, a little two-part mini-series. We're going to do Jonah 1 and 2 this morning, and we're going to do Jonah 3 and 4 next week. I'm going to read the first two chapters as you follow along. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Then, after he's been in the fish for three days and three nights, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, thou didst hear my voice. For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you that in spite of our disobedience and our waywardness and our outright rebellion and hypocrisy, that you continue to, be, to remain faithful to yourself, faithful to your word, that you, Father, have promised that the good work that you began in us, you will complete and finish and perfect in the day of Christ Jesus. Father, forgive us our callousness, our cheap and shallow worship.
Father, for whatever uh, is needed here this morning, would you enable the power of your Holy Spirit to come and to wound those who need to be convicted, to heal those who need to be encouraged. We ask, Father, that what we do here this morning, in the speaking, in the meditating on, and in the response to your word, would bring glory and honor to you, would exalt Jesus Christ, and would display the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The elders and pastors are getting together for a powwow on August 13th, right? That's been mentioned here in the service. Going to talk about how Edgewood as a church body, as a church family, can get outside the four walls of the church, can have an impact in the community around us. It usually tends to break down, at least in three general ways, the the neighborhood community, the Fort Benning community, and the CSU community. Usually those are the three, you know, big headings. And so as I've been thinking about that and looking and praying and anticipating that time coming together, one of the things that continues to, uh, to strike me and convict me is uh, oftentimes how unwilling I am to do that, to move, to get outside of comfort zones, to talk to people or engage people that I don't already know or that I don't have much in common with. And one of the ways or one of the other difficulties or problems that comes in is that oftentimes when you know, you have this brainstorming session and you come up with a new strategy or a new program or a new ministry, that's, we're tempted to approach it as if that's, that's all it really is, right? It's just another thing. I've got lots of things, right? Lots of things to do with my time, lots of competing interests, lots of competing desires, and oftentimes the challenge to move and to act And to step out in faith just really is not all that attractive to me. Any of you think, feel the same way? Just pastors feel that way. So I came to Jonah because Jonah obviously is the quintessential problem child in God's family, right? He's the one that God comes to and he says, Jonah, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to proclaim my word because there's this great evil and this great wickedness. And then, he, as far as we know, he just kind of leaves it open-ended. You don't worry about the results. You just go and speak, and we'll see what happens. Jonah turns and runs. And so, typically, whenever we come to the book of Jonah, it's uh, this kind of Christian moralism, right? See Jonah. See Jonah get a word from the Lord. See Jonah run. See Jonah get thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish. Don't be like Jonah. Right? That's not the point to Jonah. At least I've become convinced. That's not the point to Jonah. As I read and reread and thought and looked and studied and thought and reread some more, I started to see that one of the interesting things that goes on in the book of Jonah, the matter of first importance, in fact, is not what kind of prophet Jonah is or is not. The matter of first importance in the book of Jonah is not the kind of prophet Jonah is, but what kind of God Jehovah is. The story is about God. Big surprise, right? Let me give you this quote you have in your sermon notes at the very top. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. I think that's it. The issue for Jonah, or the issue for us as we read Jonah, is not what kind of prophet Jonah is, but what kind of God Jehovah is. The issue for us as a church 
is not what kind of church we are, is not what kind of Christian we are, but what kind of God we claim to serve and worship. And all through the book of Jonah, all through the book of Jonah, you're seeing God put Himself on display. And by the time you get to the end of the book, this will become more apparent next week, you're left with the unshakable conclusion that really at the heart of this, what really Jonah has been wrestling with is whether or not he's willing to say, this is the kind of God that I preach and proclaim, and this is the kind of God that I worship. Therefore, I will do the word of the Lord. The problem that you and I have when it comes to getting outside of comfort zones is that our worship is too cheap. It's too shallow. Whoever, whatever it is that we do when we worship is not enough to compel us to do different things, much less risky things. And so what I want to do, I want to go through these two chapters this morning, and I just want to look. What kind of God is it that Jonah should have been worshiping, and worshiping in such a way that he actually moved and obeyed and went where God told him to go? And I think the transition to application is very easy, because the same God that Jonah was called to worship and obey and proclaim is the same God that we worship, proclaim and obey. So, number one, our God, the God that we worship, the God who compels us to move, is the God who gives Himself with His Word. Our God is the God who gives Himself with His Word. I get this from the first, say, three verses, and then it pops up again in verse 10. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go and preach this, and then it says after that, but Jonah rose up to flee to another place, he runs in the opposite direction, to flee from the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord. What is Jonah doing? Does Jonah really think that he can run away from, get far enough away from an ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God? Is that what Jonah's doing? Is that his mindset, his thought process? Right? Like Jonah didn't have, what is it, Psalm 139? Is that Psalm 139? Where can I go from your spirit? You know, if I go to the depths of the ocean, you're there. If I go here, if I go there, if I sprout up wings and fly to the furthest reaches of creation, there's nowhere that I can go to get away from you. Jonah didn't know that. So what in the world are we to understand when it says that Jonah fled from or was running from the presence of the Lord? I think what we're supposed to do is that we're, to, we're supposed to see a relationship, a connection between the word of the Lord that comes to Jonah and Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. In other words, the word of the Lord is, in one sense, the presence of the Lord. When the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, Jonah is in the presence of the Lord. When Jonah runs from the command of the Lord and runs from the word of the Lord and disobeys, Jonah is running from the word of the Lord, but by running from the word of the Lord, he is inevitably running from God himself. Do you see that? So the significance here is that what Jonah is doing is running from the presence of the Lord even though what he's running from is a word from the Lord or is a command from the Lord. So, well, so what, right? That's the question. See, the challenge then comes in is that oftentimes what we're tempted to do as parents, or as pastors, or as teachers, or as husbands and wives, or whatever the case may be, right? We give the Word of the Lord. We, we can speak it. We can tell it. 
but we don't ever make the connection between the Word of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. So I could come up here and could say to you, listen, don't be like Jonah. Don't be disobedient. Oh, it's going to be miserable for you if you're disobedient. Do you see what happened to Jonah? Got on a cruise, and the cruise almost sunk, and then he got swallowed by a fish, and then the fish vomited him up. That's, that's not good. Don't be disobedient. Don't you dare be disobedient. What if the greater tragedy is not just simply that Jonah was disobedient, but that in being disobedient, Jonah forfeits the presence of God in his life? What if you came to understand, and I came to understand, that when I read Scripture, and when Scripture says, you go and do this, or you go and say this, what if instead of just merely thinking in terms of do's and don'ts, I think of presence, the presence of God? See, all through Scripture, this this dynamic, this connection between the Word of God and the presence of God shows up. Let me just give you two verses where this shows up. 1 Samuel, I think we have this up for the screen. We do. 1 Samuel 3.21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel at Shiloh. How? How? By the word of the Lord. The Lord appeared at Shiloh. He was there. He showed up. He made himself known to Samuel. How did he do it? 321 says he did it because Samuel received the word of the Lord. When Samuel got the word of the Lord, he got the Lord himself. John, chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our abode or our dwelling with him. Have you ever stopped to think that by listening to and hearing the words of Scripture and by doing them, that's how you get more of what your heart really craves. That's how you get more delight, more joy, more contentment, more satisfaction. Not because you're just trying to meet a certain metric or a certain mark. Not just because you're trying to do do's and don'ts, but because you jealously desire and long for God Himself. And God says, here it is. You want me? I give you the Word. To the extent that you walk in the Word, you hear it, you live it, you do it, in a reciprocal way, you get more of me. See, here's the problem. When my lack of faith, my lack of obedience, my disobedience reveals itself, rears its ugly head, the problem is not just mere disobedience. The problem is is that I don't desire God enough, and that's why I'm not being obedient. The reason that the church is willing to be comfortable in a pew, or families, Christian families, are willing to be comfortable with the status quo and let society set the the tone or the standard or the norm for their family is because they just, they don't love God enough. They love other things. They love other people more than they love God, more than they desire God. If they loved Him more, they would do more of the Word because in doing the Word, you get more of Him. So God holds out to you and to me and to the family, the body of Edgewood, an opportunity to get infinitely more than what we would expect if we hear and obey His Word. Because God says, to those who take my word and proclaim it and who live it, I give more of myself. Jesus says elsewhere in John, these things I have spoken to you that you may have joy and that your joy may be made full. Number two, 
Our God is the God who is sovereign over calamity and sin. Our God is the God who is sovereign over calamity and sin. Let's be honest, one of the reasons that we wrestle with the Word of the Lord, the reason that we wrestle with coming to know and see and experience the presence of God through the Word is that the Word oftentimes leads us to do risky, uncomfortable things. It's it's just the nature of what God does. God calls all of us out to die so that we can live. Dying is not comfortable. Suffering is not comfortable. A hurried schedule is not comfortable. Interruptions are not pleasant, are not fun. So yes, I'm all for, and I can agree that to the extent that I wrestle with and I engage the Word of God, I'm, I'm in the presence of the Lord Himself. The problem, though, is, is I can't get over this hurdle of what may come should I actually live the Word and live in the presence of God. That opens me up to too many dangers, to too many threats. Good news. The one who's in control of all calamity is God Himself. Let me show you how this displays itself marvelously in the book of Jonah in these first two chapters. In, chap- in chapter 1, verse 2, Jonah is told, Go to the city of Nineveh, cry against it for its wickedness. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Yours may read a little bit different. Its wickedness has come up before me. That's the Hebrew word ra'ah. Go cry against Nineveh because it's ra'ah. Its wickedness has come up before me. This word ra'ah occurs probably about nine times in the small book of Jonah. You want to see where else it occurs? If you skip down a little bit further, down to verse 7, each man says to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this ra'ah, this calamity, has struck us. And then again in verse 8, when they ask Jonah, On whose account has this Ra'ah, this calamity struck us. Jonah, go cry against Nineveh because of their wickedness. Here's the irony. Jonah turns and runs from the presence of the Lord by disobeying his word, and Jonah creates a Ra'ah of himself. Right? When the storm comes on the ship, on the boat, how how does it come? How does it come? Bad luck? The Lord throws a storm onto the boat, just like the sailors start to throw things over the ship and will throw Jonah into the sea. The Lord throws a storm onto the boat. And then the sailors actually speak better than God's prophet does at the very end. Do you notice in verse 14? After they've they've tried everything, they're desperate. Even when Jonah said, throw me over, and this ra'ah, this calamity goes away, this storm disappears, they're not willing to do that. They apparently care more about human life than what Jonah, oddly enough, does, because he's willing to let Nineveh be destroyed. Dwell on that, think on that for a little bit. But even after Jonah tells them to throw him over... They're not willing to do it. Finally, they come. Well, we don't have anything else to do. We can't row ourselves out of this. We've thrown everything over the ship. This is is a last-ditch effort. What do they say? They pray to the Lord that Jonah says that he serves and worships, and they say this in verse 14. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, Lord, you have done what you we're pleased to do. You, Lord, did this ra'ah. You brought this calamity and forced our hands in throwing Jonah overboard. God creates calamity. A couple more verses. Isaiah 45.7 This is the Lord speaking. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create ra'ah, 
calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Psalm 107, 23 through 30. This is almost, it's almost as if someone took the story of Jonah and penned this part of the psalm. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke, and He raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Sound familiar? Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so He guided them to their desired haven. God creates calamity to serve His purpose. If you and I step out to encounter the presence of the Lord through the Word of the Lord, calamity may come. Disaster may come. Pain and suffering may come. But if Jonah means anything, if Isaiah 45 means anything, if Psalm 103 means anything, the Lord says, that's okay. Because even in calamity, I'm still reigning and I'm still sovereign. More to the point, what Jonah misses, right? Calamity comes on account of Jonah because of his own evil and wickedness in disobeying and running from the presence of the Lord. As a result of that, this crew of sailors are in this boat and they're about to be destroyed. There's one man in the boat who has the answer to what can save them. One man, and where is he? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. He's comfortable. He's relaxed. He's dead to the world. It takes a pagan to come and wake God's prophet up to say, hey, why don't you pray? Why don't you ask your God to intervene so that we're not destroyed? And it takes pagans to finally come to the conclusion at the end of the day what Jonah should have said at the very beginning in verse 3. Well, this is the word of the Lord. This is his doing. You do whatever you please. You send your prophet to Nineveh. You send your prophet onto a ship. You do whatever you want. Let me give you a word of encouragement also. When it comes to stepping out and engaging people who are in their own stormy seas, their their own form of calamity and disaster, when Jonah is stirred awake, when he's roused from his sleep and he comes up on deck, what do the sailors most desperately need at that particular moment? What do they need? They need salvation. They don't need a bigger, better boat. Right? Christians reinvent everything and put the Christian label on it because we're trying to alleviate suffering or calamity or chaos. And so we say, you're in a stormy sea? I can show you how to build a better boat. You got a rotten marriage? Do these ten things and you'll get a better marriage. Your kids act like hellions? Let me give you a couple parenting tips. A couple how-tos and they'll be dressed in ties next Sunday morning. Whatever kids do these days. And God says, no... The calamity, the chaos that they're in is intentional. I brought it because they need to know that they need salvation. They need deliverance. We then try to give them a placebo. We try to give them something easy, simple, comfortable, rather than giving them God. They don't need another boat. They don't need another marriage partner. They don't need another child. They don't need another job. They need God. Jonah just doesn't really care 
that much to see God show up. Has to be drug out of him. But it's not just that God is sovereign, that he rules over chaos and over calamity, prepping those that we would come into contact with to hear a message about the one who saves. No, even in failures, even in disobedience, even in outright rebellion, God's even sovereign in that. I mean, it's easy to see how that plays out in Jonah's story, right? God says to Jonah, Jonah, there are these pagans over in Nineveh that I want you to go and preach to. Jonah says, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going somewhere else. God says, fine. Even though you're rebelling, I'll do one better. I'm going to have you preach to some pagan sailors, then get thrown into the sea, and then I'll take you back to Nineveh and you'll preach anyway. So at a certain point, Jonah has to come to the conclusion that one way or the other, God's will and work is going to be done. With me or without me, breathing fresh air on the land or down in the depths of the ocean, drowning, one way or the other, God's will is going to be done. So, church, wouldn't you much rather desire and delight to see miracles happen with you than without you? Wouldn't you rather see transformation, deliverance, calamity, cease, order brought into chaos as a result of the presence of the Lord being brought into a stormy situation because of your witness and your testimony? And by the way, God just doesn't do this only with Jonah. He does it all through Scripture. So, we don't have this as a slide, but turn to these passages with me. Turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we're going to hit a couple verses here. Start at verse 12. This is Paul talking about Israel's failure, her disobedience, her rebellion against God and against their Messiah. And Paul says this in Romans eleven twelve. Now, if their transgression, if their violation be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Skip down to verse 15. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Skip to verse 25 and 26. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Do you, do you see what's going on here? Israel rebels against their king. Israel disobeys. Israel forfeits everything. And God says, guess what? Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Now instead of the kingdom coming just to the Israelites, the kingdom comes to the Gentiles. And then Paul says, if in their sin and disobedience God does this, what in the world is He going to do when they actually turn and repent and obey? Do you see? There it is again. If Jonah, in his rebellion and disobedience, leads to the witness and testimony to a crew of pagan sailors, and they're brought face to face with the living God, well then what in the world can God do, or will God do, when Jonah turns and repents and obeys? And then Paul is so overcome, is so amazed at how this works out, that even in the face of failure and rejection and disobedience, that God still has His way. He closes off the chapter this way. Start at verse 32. For God has shut up all in disobedience, that He might show mercy to all. Whose disobedience is it? It's ours. 
It's theirs. Who's in control? He is. He shuts up all in disobedience so that he might show mercy to all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his ways and his judgments. How unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. People, if you cannot get excited about that kind of a God, that kind of a king, I I don't know what else to tell you. You realize that when you engage the Word of God, you engage the presence of an almighty king and ruler who says, no matter what happens, no matter what they try to do to you, no matter what you fail to do, ultimately, at the end of the day, my will reigns supreme. And I graciously give you the opportunity, the privilege, to experience that. I want you to see it. I want you to touch it. I want you to taste it. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. One last place, Acts chapter 4, verse 24 through 28. apostles have been threatened, they've been mistreated, they go back, they tell the rest of the church what it is that's just happened. Acts chapter 4 verse 24, and when they heard this, they talking about the church, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by your Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise or plan futile, empty, worthless things? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you did anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The whole world was aligned against God and His Messiah. Yet, verse 28, they were aligned against him to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Do you see what's being said there? That the God that we worship, the God that we sing to and praise, and the God that we carry with us with his word is a God who says, even when man rebels, Their rebellion only goes to further my purpose. The ultimate act of rebellion in human history was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And God says, happened just the way that I wanted it to. You rebelled, you're responsible, you're guilty, but you fulfilled my plan and my purpose. How can that not compel you to do something more with a comfortable, easy life? To know that whether I go out and I, and, and I trip all over my tongue or I make a fool out of myself, ultimately there's nothing that thwarts the purposes and the plans of God. To know that nothing, nothing is empty or wasted time when you speak, when you act on behalf of your Lord and Savior, because when you bring the Word of the Lord to someone, you bring God Himself. And if God is for us, who can be against us? The problem with you and the problem with me, the problem with the church, when we are comfortable and lazy and apathetic, is that our worship is too shallow and it's too cheap. Because the more we come back to the Word and we see 
that God gives himself in the speaking and the proclamation of his word, that God rules supreme over all calamity, over all disorder. He creates it and he calms it, that he is the reigning king even over rebels who would try to thwart his will. The more amazed and awestruck we are and the more drawn we are into a fuller experience with our God and our Savior. If you're not moving, it's because you're not worshiping. If I'm not moving, it's because I'm not worshiping. Worship compels you to witness. C.S. Lewis said it this way. I paraphrase roughly. He had a hard time as he became, when he, in the early days of his Christianity, he had a hard time reconciling the fact that humility is something, is something of a virtue for, for people, for, for men and women. Yet, the Christian God goes all the way through Scripture saying, praise me, love me, worship me, give me this, give me that, bow down, kiss my feet. Lewis said, I, I didn't get that. It seemed obnoxious. It seemed offensive. It makes God seem petty, insecure, and then Lewis said all of a sudden it hit him. He realized that all of creation, everywhere you go in the world, there are lovers praising what they love. They can't help but praise what they love. A man praising a beautiful woman. A hiker praising a gorgeous scenery, sunrise, sunset. Parents praising their cute little kid. People praising, talking about, enamored with the latest movie or gadget or thing. See, what you're most consumed by and what you love the most is inevitably what you're going to talk about most and what you're going to praise most. Little praise, little talk. Much praise, much talk. The more you worship, the more you're consumed with the person and the character of God, the more you will naturally, willingly, delightfully go and talk about him with other people. You can't help but do so. Last point, point number three. Our God is the God who saves rebels from a deserving death. Our God is the God who saves rebels from a deserving death. One of the creative elements of Jonah, just as a written piece of literature, is that as you're going through chapter 1, you've got this rapid-fire succession of events, right? Where the Lord comes to Jonah, Jonah runs, he gets on a boat, storm comes to the boat, sailors are frantic, they shake Jonah awake, Jonah comes up, he says this, they row some more, they throw some more stuff, they throw Jonah overboard, seas calm, right? Bam, 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 bam. All this, and then you get to chapter 2, and ugh, poetry, right? The story was so much more exciting. Get us, get us to chapter 3 quickly so that we can pick back up with the story and find out what Jonah does. You know why chapter 2 is there? You know why chapter 2 stops the story and interrupts it? You're supposed to feel that interruption, by the way right? I mean, you're, you're moving at a quick pace, and then all of a sudden, it's like it moves into slow motion. That's intentional. The reason that it's done that way is because by moving from the story to now Jonah's prayer in the fish, we're forced to stop and slow down with Jonah. And when Jonah finds himself in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights, then prays, well, it only took Jonah three days and three nights till he finally figured out, well, maybe I need to do something different. Maybe I need to stop and reflect. Maybe I need to stop and pray and cry out to a God who saves. And so all of chapter 2, the poem in chapter 2, Jonah's prayer is a prayer about how he is dead for all intents and purposes. 
There's no reason that he should be alive, no reason that he should be breathing, and yet God pulls him up from the grave. God listens to the cry of a sinful rebel and answers his prayer, forgives him, gives him a second lease on life. And he rounds off the poem, he rounds off the prayer with a statement that says it all, salvation is from the Lord. See, Jonah has to be brought to the realization that the same salvation, the same deliverance that he does not want pagan sailors to receive, or the same deliverance and salvation that he does not want Ninevites to receive, is the same salvation that he so desperately needs himself. He is a rebel deserving of death. He is one who is guilty of ra'ah, who is guilty of evil and wickedness, just as Nineveh is guilty of evil and wickedness. And he, just like they, needs a God who mercifully, miraculously comes in and saves him from a certain death. People, if you haven't heard anything else that's been said as we've worked through these first two chapters, you need to hear this. If you and I are bashful, are shy, are fearful, are hesitant, even resistant, even disobedient to walking in the presence of the Lord, to proclaiming the word of the Lord, I would suggest that what we see in Jonah is, is that we have not really come to fully appreciate the salvation that was first given to us. I've gotten too comfortable with the notion that God loves me. Of course He loves me, right? It's me. I don't see myself as someone who smells, as someone who stinks, as someone who is guilty of evil and wickedness himself, not just in thought, but in word, in action, not just in what I do, but in what I don't do. And so God will supernaturally create calamity in my life. Little reminders, little tokens that say, yeah, this is part of the chaos that you need to remind you of how desperately you need me. It's also a reminder that an even greater chaos awaits in the life to come, and you have already been miraculously saved from it. If you cannot be startled and amazed by that, it's no wonder that you don't move and share it with someone else. If you're comfortable with the notion of forgiveness and reconciliation, if you're comfortable with the notion that you worship a holy and righteous God who hates sin and, yes, even hates sinners, yet somehow, mysteriously, miraculously, loves sinners to the point that he sacrifices his own son? If you're not moved by that, you're not going to be moved to go out from here and to do something different. So the challenge is, is that as Edgewood, as a church family, as a church body moves forward, as we think and pray, and I hope that you are, about what the Lord would have us to do, what says the Lord to His servant, where is the Word of the Lord going to be most effective and powerfully demonstrated in our lives and in our testimony and our witness, I hope you understand and I hope you see, even if only through these two chapters in Jonah, that what propels us, what fuels us, what gives us our drive and our ambition to do things differently or to take on another mission or another objective or another challenge is not just simply the fact that we have extra time on our hands or that we're bored or that this or that. It's the fact that we become more and more consumed with the presence of an almighty God that we cannot help but do something different than what I would ordinarily do. And so I would encourage you, if you find yourself just in your own personal walk with the Lord, not an effective witness, not someone who steps out boldly, not someone who knows the presence of the Lord in the Word of the Lord as you read, as you study, 
Find out why it is that you're not worshiping. Because as your worship heats up, your witness is going to catch on fire. Worship to witness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that is powerful to convict, powerful to expose even our innermost thoughts and desires. Lord, I confess my hardness of heart. I confess my own shallowness and cheap worship. It's offensive. It's embarrassing. And Father, the truth of the matter is, is that for me, for my family, for your church, Lord, to the extent that we break away from your presence, to the extent that we fail to drive deeper in our worship and our awe and admiration for you, to that same degree, we will cease to be a light and a witness, a vessel of your glory being taken out to the communities around us. So, Father, I pray that in a very significant way that you would shape hearts and minds, that you would consume us with a passion for your glory, that you would uh, cause us to be caught up in your greatness and in your majesty, that we would eagerly, jealously desire to see and to know more of you through your word and by the proclamation of your word, that we would uh, go out with boldness and confidence knowing that no matter what calamity or what sin or what rebellion we encounter, that you still reign supreme and that, Father, at the end of the day, we go out of sheer joy and thanksgiving and gratitude because the salvation that we hold out to offer to others is a salvation that we desperately needed ourselves and has been graciously granted to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ who himself fulfilled the sign of Jonah, was thrown over into the calamity of your anger and wrath so that he might save others, yet not because of any fault or sin or transgression of his own, but he substituted himself in the place of sinners so that we might be forgiven. Give us joy, we ask, in your presence. And it's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.